0: Great, thank you, Brian. If you could keep that uh, reading open in front of you, uh, we'll be looking at that over the next, uh, next few minutes. Let me pray for us as we uh, begin. Uh, the scriptures say of themselves that they are living and active, and we trust their testimony. We pray, uh, Lord Jesus, that as we read of you, uh, and as your word speaks of you, uh, that you would meet with us. Uh, the living, active, living word. Uh, pray that you would show us fresh things. Uh, speak to us, we pray, uh, for your name's sake. Amen. Uh, it was a job interview like uh, no other. In, uh, one Monday morning in May 2006, uh, a man called Guy Gomer arrived at BBC Television Centre for an interview. It, he was, thought he was going for an interview uh, to be part of the BBC's IT support. Uh, instead, he found himself in the News 24 studio. Uh, with a live stream uh, interview discussing uh, the tech giant Apple's legal battle with the Beatles to uh, stream their music. Uh, His face is an absolute picture. I wish I could have the technology to show you it, but you can go go ahead and look it up on YouTube. It's very, very funny. Uh, A producer had confused him with another uh, gentleman with the name Guy, uh, technology expert Guy Carney, who was waiting somewhere else in BBC Television Centre. These mistakes happen, don't they? Uh, Mistaken identity uh, can just be embarrassing. A bit like that. Nobody was harmed. It can be embarrassing. It it can be much worse. Think of a situation perhaps in in a court case. Sometimes court cases have been decided on the basis of a mistaken identity. Uh, Mark's gospel that we're looking at this evening is written to avoid mistaken identity. Uh, Mark is writing to show us Who Jesus really is, why he came, and what that means for us. Uh, Mark doesn't like to waste time. He gets straight to the action, and he does so immediately uh, in this opening scene. And I think in this opening scene, the the baptism of Jesus, he shows us two wonderful truths about who he is and why he has come. Uh, And the first one is, and I've got a slide uh, for each of these uh, two headings, is that Jesus is the anointed king who has been promised by the prophets. Uh, Jesus is the anointed king who is promised by the prophets. Um, apparently, there's an old joke in, uh, in Buckingham Palace that wherever the queen goes, she always smells fresh paint. I don't know uh, quite whether that's true or not, uh, but there is a, this old joke that whenever uh, the royals turn up, that that always prompts a, uh, a spring clean. Uh, I don't know how you find out that the queen is coming to visit. It's never happened to me, uh, so I, I have no idea how these things work. Uh, But in times past, you would have found out by a herald. A herald was somebody who was employed to to go ahead of the monarch and to announce their arrival. Uh, And that announcement would be be a sign to all the people who heard it that they had to get on with things and get ready. Get the paintbrushes out, sort things out, get things ready in time uh, for the king coming. Uh, And John the Baptist, who who, uh, occupies sort of the first part of this uh, little little, uh, scene, is in essence a herald for Jesus. Uh, We're told, verse 4, John came baptising in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness uh, of sins. Uh, He suddenly appeared in his strange clothing with his very kind of direct preaching, uh, and his job was to prepare the way for somebody else uh, to come. He said that in verse 7, this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I. Uh, His job was to prepare the way for Jesus, God's king. He was a herald, if we want to put it uh, like that. Uh, Mark's account, I think, gives the impression that this was completely unexpected. Uh, And I don't really think that it it should have been uh, for the people at the time. Uh, the prospects of a king coming should have been pretty familiar to these people. Uh, why? Because if they'd been reading their Old Testament, it would have been exactly what the prophets had been promising. Uh, we have a quotation here, don't we? Verse uh, 2, from, uh, from uh, here, uh, Mark says, from Isaiah. He's also quoting here a bit from uh, another prophet called uh, Malachi. Uh, but the important thing is that both of these prophets spoke very clearly that there would be somebody who came who would come in the, in the spirits of Elijah, one of the great prophets of Israel's past, and he would be coming in order to prepare the way for another greater one who was coming. You can see, can't you, verse 2, this is what Isaiah and Malachi said, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. All this is just as the prophet's Have promised. They shouldn't have been surprised about this, even though there had been uh, several uh, hundred years of uh, of silence. It was what they'd expected. What I think would have been more surprising, however, is the the preparation that John insists this, a coming king, uh, insists on. Uh, By the time that John began his ministry, uh, the Jewish people were were feverishly waiting for what the prophets uh, had told them about. Uh, They were under the tyranny of the Roman Empire. It was a miserable time, uh, by and large, for them. And unsurprisingly, as as things seemed to get worse, uh, many of them felt in their hearts that that God surely couldn't wait any longer. Come on, the time has to come for the promises uh, to be fulfilled. Uh, There was a sense of expectation. It had been building slowly but surely as the years went on. And yet, despite the fact that there was expectation, uh, there was no clear consensus about what this this king, this messiah, this one of whom the prophets spoke of, uh, what he would look like, or indeed, what what he would do, or demand demand of uh, the people of God. Uh, There were a number of ideas that were sort of floating around. Uh, Some people thought that he would be essentially a politician. Uh, He would come and he would lead a sort of resurgence of... Jewish national pride. Uh, others thought that he would be a general. He would come, be a strong military leader. He would raise up a mighty army. They would uh, defeat the Romans. They'd crush Israel's enemies. Uh, and he would lead the, the nation into, into lasting peace and lasting freedom. All those things that seem to have eluded them uh, over the years. Uh, still others thought that it would be some kind of charismatic religious figure who would, who would come and somehow lead a religious revival, um, of sorts. Uh, John the Baptist's words, I think, make it clear that the one who is coming is actually very different to all of those expectations. Uh, what does he say about him? Well, to start, he says that he will be uh, one who is both human and yet also divine. You can see from the description, can't you, that Isaiah uh, gives him. He says, prepare the way for the Lord. Uh, that term the Lord is the term that the Old Testament used for God. Uh, Clearly this is somebody who is divine. It isn't just a a, a charismatic prophet he's coming who's got all the gift of the gab but nothing else. But at the same time he's clearly human as well. Let's see what John says about him in verse 7. He says, after me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. It's it's a bit sort of, you know, banal, isn't it? Sandals. But John is getting, uh, is getting across to us that this is somebody who is flesh and blood. Uh, he, his spirits don't wear sandals. Uh, he will be a man, a flesh and blood, a real figure. He is human, and yet he's also uh, divine. Uh, John tells us more, doesn't he? He says when he does eventually come, uh, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And again, that was a sign for the people. Throughout the Old Testament, there had been this this gathering sense that God was up to something. He was going to do something, and and that something would involve his Holy Spirit. Uh, His Holy Spirit would come, and that would be associated with the sending of this coming king. Again, it, it all adds up to this picture, that there is something special about this king. He's not human. He's not just a prophet. He's not a general. He's not a politician. He is the Messiah. It will be God at work through him in ways that people could never have dreamt of before. That would, I think, have been surprising to the people listening to John. But I think the most surprising thing would have been uh, the preparations that John says this king demands of them. Verse 4, we're told John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's right there in the middle, isn't it, of that verse. Repentance. Uh, That was at the heart of John's message and at the heart of the preparations for this king. Uh, Repentance, in the original language, literally just means a turning away or a sort of turning round. It's turning away from one way that is wrong, that is rebellious, uh, turning around, doing a U-turn and going in a different way, uh, living under God's rules, under the rule of this king. Uh, John says that is what preparation for the Messiah looks like. Uh, and as part of that, as a kind of outward sign that that inward change has happened, uh, he called the people to undergo baptism, to be dipped in water, to be washed clean, uh, as a sign that something, something fundamental uh, had happened here. In other words, what John is saying here is that the, the king who is coming is not interested in paintbrushes or spring cleans. He's not interested in the outward stuff. He's interested in the heart. He wants spiritual preparation above all else. And even more shocking is that there are no exceptions to this. John is, of course, speaking to people who, if you ask them, would say that they were God's people. It was the people outside Israel who needed to sort themselves out. The Romans, the Greeks, the Assyrians, you name it. They were the people who needed to sort themselves out, not the Jews. And John says, no, you guys, as much as anybody else, have to get right with God. You need to repent. You need to turn from the ways that are wrong, from your rebellion, and return to live under his rule. Turn from sin and come under the king's rule. Uh, Sometimes we uh, see, don't you, if you're going out in in, in town or down the streets, uh, if a shop or a pub is is struggling, uh, sometimes they'll they'll have a refurbishment. They'll get a lick of paint and uh, some new fixtures and a few things, maybe a new name, uh, and they'll they'll try to do that, sort of, uh, kind of revive themselves. Uh, You know things get really serious when the sign goes up under new management. Things have completely changed. Someone else has stepped in and uh, come in charge, and, and they're sourcing things out. And the Bible tells us here that that Jesus is here not just to offer a sort of light refurbishment. Uh, He's not saying he's going to come in and just give us a quick lick of paint and uh, and change the signs around. No, he's here to put us under new ownership. Uh, He wants each of us to stop living for ourselves, uh, to stop being the owners, and instead to live for him uh, with his Spirit's help. And the first question I want to ask of us this evening is that question. Are we under Jesus' ownership? He's the king. He's the anointed king who the prophets promised. He has come to rule, to reign, and to restore. Uh, He wants to be the boss. And he's the perfect boss. There's no other boss of our lives who could get it better than Jesus. He knows what's good for us. He created us. He knows us. He loves us. Uh, He is God's anointed king. He's come to rule in our hearts, and what we have to do is give him the keys, and let him be in charge and take control. Jesus, the King, has come, and he's here to rule and to restore. That's the first thing that John uh, Mark tells us about uh, Jesus. What's the second thing? Well, the second thing is, if we can have the second uh, slide, thank you, Richard. Is that Jesus is the suffering Son, who is affirmed by his Father. Jesus is the suffering Son affirmed by his Father. Uh, if we move on to the sort of second section of our, our reading, the, the baptism uh, of Jesus, uh, I think when we look at it from a human perspective, it's rather hard to, to get our heads around. It presents us with a bit of a problem. Uh, we've seen, didn't we, that, that John's baptism with water was a, a baptism of repentance. Uh, That is, it was a sign that something fundamental had changed in a person's heart. Uh, They turned away from their old ways. They turned to live uh, under Jesus' ways, under God's uh, rule. Uh, That's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Because we know that Jesus, however, lived a life of perfect obedience to God. He never did anything uh, that was uh, remotely rebellious against God. I mean, he said this, uh, we're told, Uh, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He wasn't lying. He wasn't exaggerating. Uh, He was simply uh, telling the truth. Uh, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, to the Father. Uh, Jesus had no need of repentance. And so really, I think, had no need of of baptism, we might uh, say. But still, I think there are a number of good reasons why Jesus did undergo baptism Uh, that John offered, even if it might seem a bit unnecessary to us. I suppose, for starters, it it marked the formal start of his uh, his public ministry. It it marked that decisive moment when he left Nazareth, he left uh, the life he'd known before, uh, to set out on the task for which uh, he had come. It was a a moment of decision, we could say. But it was also a, a moment of equipping as well, uh, we're told, aren't we, in uh, verse 10 that uh, heaven was torn open and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. It, it was a moment where the Lord Jesus was equipped for what lay ahead. Uh, the Spirit came upon him uh, in power to, uh, to enable him to carry out the task uh, that lay ahead of him. All those things are, are true and, and they are important. But I do think the real significance of Jesus, baptism lies in the words that the Father speaks over him as he comes out of the water. What does he say? Verse uh, 11, a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Here we have from the mouth of God the Father himself a, a revelation of who Jesus is and why he has come. Well, who is he? Well, the words that uh, the father uses are, are, in fact, an echo of two Old Testament passages. They're sort of stitched together uh, to make, uh, make, uh, make one, uh, one phrase, as it were. Uh, the first uh, part is from uh, Psalm 2. You don't have to look it up. You can look it up later. Uh, it's from the uh, start of Psalm 2, uh, which was a psalm that was written for the coronation of um, Israel's kings. Uh, Back in the uh, the Old Testament, when they would crown a king, they would sing uh, Psalm 2 uh, about it. But it was always read as well as having a deeper meaning. It was always seen as pointing ahead to this uh, this Messiah, this promised King that God would send in the future. And this is all weighing up, adding to the evidence, isn't it? Just as John the Baptist had said, Jesus is that King. He's that anointed king, he's the Messiah, he's the one of whom the prophets spoke, he's the one of whom the psalm is speaking. He's here, the king has come. Even more than that, these words tell us, uh, he's not simply another human king, like King David or or King Solomon or any other of the kings of Israel, but he is the son of God. That's what uh, the father says, doesn't he? You are my son, whom I love. John has hinted at this suddenly, just as we saw with the sandals and the, and the talk of the Holy Spirit and the reference to the Lord. But, but here we have it in absolute full confirmation. And that's better than anybody could have possibly imagined. Uh, many people were looking forward to the Messiah. They believed that God would send the Messiah in the right time. But no one would have dared to believe that, in fact, the Messiah is also the Son of God. It is God Himself who has come to dwell with His people. In the person of the Lord Jesus, the one on whom the Father has set his eternal love. Jesus is God's Son. It's not just the king, like any other king. It is God incarnate, God in flesh. Uh, the second half of what the Father says, I think, takes us into a darker, uh, darker tone, as it were. Uh, it is taken, actually, from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter uh, 42. It's part of the famous middle section of Isaiah, which contains what uh, most, most Christians have called uh, the servant songs. It's a bit of Isaiah that probably most people are most familiar with, I think. Uh, at the heart of these chapters uh, is a portrait of one whom Isaiah describes as the servant of the Lord. a servant of the Lord. Uh, he's one who's been chosen by God. He's got a special task to perform. Uh, He's one upon whom God's Spirit uh, will rest. Again, parallels with what Sir John said. Uh, He is one who will represent the people of God back to God. Uh, He will also be a light to the nations of the world. Uh, Above all, we're told, as the the songs come to a climax, uh, he is one who will suffer. He will suffer terribly and unjustly. And yet at the same time, he will suffer willingly, as well. But Isaiah explains to us as we read on that that suffering isn't in vain, it's not wanton uh, violence. Uh, It is, uh, uh, Isaiah explains for us in one of the most famous passages of the Bible, uh, the place where uh, this servant of the Lord will bear the sins of many and uh, make intercession, will uh, intercede uh, for them on uh, their behalf before God. In other words, as uh, the Father is saying here that through uh, his suffering, uh, even though Jesus himself was innocent, Jesus the servant will take on himself the sin of the world. And in doing so, he is bearing the punishment that the world deserved. This is what Isaiah says right at the, the, kind of the, the heart um, of that passage. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He, Jesus, uh, was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It is talking, of course, of the cross. How could it be anything, anything else? It's an anticipation of what Jesus would undergo. Uh, and it's written hundreds and hundreds of years before. So drawing these strands together, we can now answer that question, can't we, that the passage poses for us? Uh, Who is Jesus, and why has he come? We know. He is God's promised king. More than that, he is the divine son of God. And yet at the same time, he's a king with a difference. His life will be filled with pain, not pleasure. Uh, His transport will be a donkey. It's not going to be a chariot. Uh, His crown will be thorns. It won't be sapphires or gold or rubies. And his seat will be a cross, not a throne. In Jesus' own words, he is a king who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is both sovereign and saviour, all together in one. One of the most uh, shocking events of the last year was the uh, terrorist attacks in Paris back in, uh, in November. Uh, there were lots of moving stories that came out of it. But I think one of the most moving, for me at least, was uh, the story of one couple. Uh, the boyfriend threw himself in front of his girlfriend and took the bullets on her behalf. He died, uh, but she survived. And I was very struck, uh, I was reading an interview with her afterwards... And she kept repeating this phrase, I live because of him. I live because of him. She kept saying it over and over again. I live because of him. That was a courageous act, wasn't it, back in the Bataclan theatre. But even more than that courageous sacrifice of that young man for his girlfriend, uh, the cross of Jesus that is foreseen in this baptism, right at the start of Jesus' ministry, uh, foretells us, it means that we can say we live because of him. He died the death that we deserved. Just as he submitted to that baptism of repentance that really he had no need to undergo, uh, he came uh, to, uh, to, to in order that before God we could be declared not guilty and be free to live. And just as he rose from the waters of baptism... So three days later, after the cross, he rose again victorious. Uh, He rose that we might know him today. He is alive and reigning. We asked the question earlier, didn't we? Is Jesus our king? Let me pose another one as we draw to a close. Is he also your saviour? Is he your king? Is he also your saviour? We all need one. John has told us that much. Even the people who think that they are good in God's eyes are not. No one is good. And if we kept reading Mark's Gospel, we would find out that the need of a saviour, actually somebody who can deal with the problem of sin, who can offer us forgiveness that we really need, is actually our deepest problem. It goes beyond any problem that we could possibly have, whether it's a good life or the need of of even of physical healing. Uh, It is our greatest need to be forgiven. Because without a saviour, we all of us stand condemned before God, uh, destined for life without him, whether that's now, uh, a life cut off from God, or for eternity, uh, when uh, Jesus returns and we have to face him. But because Jesus died in our place, just as the baptism pointed to, just as the prophets had promised, our sin has been dealt with. We can say that we live because of him it's the start of a new year wouldn't it be great to be able to say with confidence that because Jesus died on the cross for you you can live because your sins are gone you've been forgiven you've been set free you don't have to worry about when Jesus comes Uh, facing him uh, will be uh, one of joy not of fear your sins are gone you're alive wouldn't it be great to say that this is your story this is your song just as we were singing uh, earlier i don't know where you are uh, this evening maybe that's all new to you it'd be great if you want to talk that through us we'd like to talk about it afterwards i'm gonna be at the front here you can uh, chat with me if you like Uh, we're running a simply christianity course in a a few weeks time which is an opportunity again to to keep exploring this what does what does it mean for jesus to come who is he Uh, what does he mean uh, for me what is he able to do for me Uh, Lots of options. Uh, Do talk to us. We'd love to uh, to help you to find out more. Uh, Mark tells us Jesus is God's suffering son, and we can live because of him. Who is Jesus? Why has he come? There's no doubt. There's no mistaken identity with Mark at all, is there? He's God's promised king, and he's come to serve us by dying for us as our saviour. We live because of him. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we thank you that all that Mark uh, and John the Baptist said of you is true. Uh, You are the king, the one of whom the prophets spoke, the one whom the nation of Israel was longing for. We thank you that you've come and your rule has started. And we pray that we would be those who would live under your rule, that you would be our king and that we would know the joy of uh, living for you. But we thank you so much that you came to deal with our sin. You are the suffering saviour. Uh, We thank you that you submitted to the Father's will, just as you did in baptism, you submitted to the cross, you underwent death for us, uh, so that we can be forgiven and set free. Lord Jesus, thank you that we live because of you. Amen.